8, we got a good Bible study here today. Mark chapter 8. And uh, Jack, it gave me a good opening illustration right there. Because today I'm talking about how to use your words carefully. How to use your words carefully. You know, folks, um, when I graduated uh, from Talbot School of Theology, I had a very unique graduation speaker. In fact, uh, this, this, they had asked a woman uh, to come and, and to speak at our graduation ceremony. Uh, she was a prominent missionary uh, for many, many years. I don't recall her name. I'm, I'm, I apologize for that. But she, she had served the Lord well for many, many years. And they had invited her to come and to speak to our ceremony months beforehand, right? Months beforehand. The graduation ceremony was was uh, actually in December. I was graduating in December. And they must have asked her, you know, five, six, seven months prior to that. They extended to her an invitation. Well, in those five, six, seven months between the invitation and between the graduation, uh, I'm very sorry to say uh, this woman developed a, a mild form of dementia. And she got up on stage in December, uh, at our graduation. Uh, the then president of the university, Clyde Cook, invited her to the stage and she got up on the stage. She, had, she was in a wheelchair and she began to talk. And this woman started talking for a very long and extended period of time. In fact, ten minutes went by and we didn't quite know what she was saying. And twenty minutes went by and everybody was kind of looking around. Thirty minutes went by. Forty, fifty, one hour, an hour and ten minutes went by. And no one in the audience knew quite what this woman was talking about. It's kind of funny, but you don't want to laugh. I know how it feels, believe me. Everyone in the audience just had no idea what was going on because no one knew that this woman had developed a mild form of, of dementia. She didn't even know what she was dealing with. And finally, the president of the university had to come up. He had to walk up from his, his seat to the stage and he motions to the audience and he says, start clapping, you know, start clapping. And everybody in the audience starts clapping and, and, and they, have to, they had to wheel the woman off the stage as she was finishing her speech. It was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen. It was so embarrassing for the president of our university who then had to discreetly apologize on behalf of the university for this gross oversight. And, 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 and try and, all the while, try to show respect and love toward this woman who didn't really know what was going on. Well, our story today in Mark is not unlike what I saw at my graduation ceremony. Our story today in Mark depicts Peter, the Apostle, who's going to start talking. He's going to start making statements about Jesus Christ. In fact, he makes one gigantic statement. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. But as we will see in our story today, what Peter said, he did not entirely understand. What Peter was saying and what Jesus was hearing and what the disciples were all hearing from Peter was well and good, but Peter and the disciples with him did not fully comprehend just the weight of what they were saying. The title of my message today is Peter's Confession. It is, You Are the Christ. And then a, a subtitle here, Why Jesus Put a Gag Order on a True Statement. You are the Christ. Why Jesus put a gag order on a true statement. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Now, our study through Mark, just before I read this, our study through Mark begins with a miracle uh, that... Today we're looking at the miracle of a blind man to start, and you'll say, well, how does this relate to the topic at hand? Hang in there, because upon close inspection, we're going to begin to see how verses 22 to 26 actually intimately relate 
with what's going to happen between Peter and Jesus. So take a look at verse 22 and let's see how it ties into the rest of the story. It says this, Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit upon his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And the blind man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Verse 27, Now Jesus and His disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road He asked His disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about Him. And He began to teach them many things. Uh, excuse me. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, I pray Your Spirit would guide this study. I pray for clarity of mind. I pray for enlightening of our eyes. I pray, Lord, that You would remove all distractions. Help us to focus on Your Word. To worship You through study. To worship You through looking into Your Word and seeking to grow thereby. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everything we've read in Mark, verses 22 to 33 is preceded by another story. A story in which Jesus is scolding the disciples. He's upset with the disciples for their blindness. For their blindness. Previously, way back when in our study in Mark, remember Jesus had fed the 5,000 and fed the 4,000? And He had he instructed the disciples, He says, I want you to be servants I want you to serve the people with the bread. And I want you to pick up the leftover bread, put them in the baskets after it's all said and done. It was a very symbolic miracle. A miracle that showed that Jesus wanted the disciples to not only serve people, but to carefully handle the bread. To pick it up after all was said and done. I would argue that's in symbolism of carefully handling the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus wanted them to get this. That their mission was to serve people and to carefully handle the bread of life. The message of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is frustrated with them in the story prior to this that they're not getting it. And this is what He says in verses 17 and 18 of Mark 8. He says this, He says, Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's saying, look at these feeding miracles and grasp their significance. Ah, but you're blind to it, He says. You're blind to it. The theme of blindness now continues in the very next story. You see, the disciples were slow of seeing. They were gradual and slow in their development. And so now we approach a story in verses 22 to 26 where Jesus is going to heal a blind man. But it's interesting where this story is positioned. And it's interesting what is said about this story because it goes back to what Jesus is saying about the disciples. Read it again, verses 22 
Uh, we're going to go to 25 right now. It says this, Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, put his hands on him, he asked if he saw anything. The man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. I see in part. Then he put his hands on him again and made him look up. And the man was restored and saw everyone clearly. Let me make an obvious observation. This miracle did not happen immediately. This miracle, taking a man from blindness to sight, did not happen immediately, did it? His ability to see came in stages. First, Jesus spits on his eyes, puts his hands on his eyes, and the man declares that he can see things in kind of a blur. He looks out and he sees, he sees something, but it looks like men or could be even trees walking around. So Jesus wasn't satisfied with this, of course. Puts his hands on his eyes again. Rubs that spit in a little bit more. You're supposed to laugh there, you know. It's like getting spat in your eyes. It's not very fun. He rubs that in a little bit more. And this time, boom! The man can see! All of a sudden, 2020, he can see everything clearly. Now we sit back and we wonder, now why in the world would it take two times? I mean, Jesus is hes the Son of God. Every other miracle prior to this, it wasn't much trouble for him. Wasn't that he was incapable of healing the man on the first try? So why did this healing come in stages? Folks, I would argue that this miracle was meant to be a visual parable to the disciples. I would argue that this miracle was meant to be a visual parable, a story, an illustration to the disciples. <clears throat> you see, Jesus heals the blind man in stages. He heals the blind man gradually. He opens his eyes step by step. It doesn't happen immediately. And in the same way, Jesus is going to be making the point and has been making the point that the disciples' eyes are slow and gradual of seeing. They are developing, but they're developing slowly. Jesus is wishing that they learn and comprehend more spiritual truth, but He recognizes that this truth is going to have to come in stages if they're going to understand who He is and what His mission is all about. And so, the stages of the blind man's healing parallels the stages of the disciples' enlightenment. The stages of the blind man's healing parallels the stages of Jesus' enlightening of the disciples. Take a look at verse 26. Notice what Jesus does at the, end of the par- at the end of the miracle. He says, Then He sent him away to His house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen Jesus many, many times heal someone or perform some sign and then say, Hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why does Jesus do this? Naturally, it would be uh, impossible to keep this miracle a secret. This blind man would have been in the town center every day begging for food, for money. People would know who he was. And so when he came back into town, they would know instantly what had happened, what had transpired. And so Jesus, he's not asking the man to keep quiet forever. That would be absurd. What he is asking is, is enough time to, quite frankly, get out of town, get out of Dodge. Jesus wants to get away with His disciples, and so He urges the man, He says, look, don't go into town right now, because the disciples and I have something important to talk about. They're not seeing clearly. I've shown them in healing you that their seeing is coming in stages. It's gradual. It's developing. And now I'm going to talk to them about that development, about the stage of enlightenment. 
And so he does get away with his disciples. Take a look at verse 27. Jesus leaves the blind man. The blind man goes off. And Jesus now goes away with his disciples. Take a look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, to the, to the, on the, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. This is the first time, verse 27, first time Jesus has asked this question. He's been with the disciples two years by this mark. By this stage in the, in the Gospel story, it's been about two years and this is the first time Jesus has asked, what are people saying about me? What are people saying about me? Now, He's not asking, and let me be very clear, He's not asking, do they like me? Do they like me? My wife and I, we always, uh, we always uh, joke about this. Uh, when, uh, when, when Casey meets anybody, I mean anybody, it can be the grocery clerk, it can be her dentist, doctor, uh, you know, somebody on the street, anybody, anywhere. When my wife meets somebody, she wants to know that they like her. Right, honey? Right, exactly. She confesses. She, lo- she likes to be liked. And so when she goes to the chiropractor, sometimes we'll go together every once in a while, we'll go to the chiropractor, and I walk in the office and sit down, and the girls behind the counter are like, Hi, Casey! And she's like, Hi, how you doing? And I'm like, How do you know these people? I mean, she gets to know everybody because she, she wants to be liked. She wants to be loved. And I admire that in my wife. I, 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 I don't care about being liked. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally ambivalent to being liked. If you don't like me, it doesn't ruin my day. It just doesn't. I, I don't know. But I need to become more sensitive, and my wife helps me to do that. So, do you guys like me? Good. Oh, I feel much better. Oh, Casey likes me. Okay, good. Where was I? Jesus is not asking, do they like me? He's not asking that, folks. Jesus is actually rather ambivalent to being liked. He's he's unconcerned about being liked. What He is asking is, what are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? What's the rumor about me? What are people saying on the streets about me? And so they answer. They say, okay, we'll tell you what they're saying on the streets. We'll tell you what they're saying in the synagogues and the villages and the marketplace. When they think of you, Jesus, the disciples say, they think of a few people. They think of John the Baptist. They think of Elijah. And they think maybe you're one of the other prophets. This was the common perception of who Jesus was two years into His ministry. Now think about that for a second. Uh, A dramatic spiritual leader arrives on scene um, in in a spiritual community, Israel. And for two years He teaches and heals and performs miracles. And and they're watching this guy and they're, they're thinking, who is this? Two years go by and they're thinking... He must be either John the Baptist, risen from the dead, because John had died. Or maybe he's Elijah, risen from the dead. Or maybe he's one of the other prophets of the Old Testament, risen from the dead. That's what they thought. They thought that Jesus must have come as a resurrected prophet, or perhaps in the spirit of these prophets. You might recall... uh, King Herod in Mark chapter 6 thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Many of them thought He was Elijah because in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it talks about Elijah coming back. So many of the Jews thought, maybe this is the final Elijah. Or one of the prophets. Jesus says, okay. Now I know what's, what's the word on the street. Now I want to hear from you. Verse 29. And he said to them, But who do you? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about Him. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. And Peter speaks up and he says, I say you're the Christ. I say you're the Christ. And then Jesus strictly warns them. Notice verse 30, after Peter's comment. He strictly warns them that they should tell no no one about Him. And here we come to the most important question of our study. Why did Jesus put a gag order on a true statement? Why would He do that? Why did Jesus put a gag order? Why did Jesus silence Peter and the disciples when the statement about Him was true? Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Messiah would have been the uh, Old Testament uh, conception of the Word. Christ would have been the, the New Testament, the Greek conception of the Word. Messiah and Christ are equivalent. Peter says, I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Messiah. And in fact, Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. So why did Jesus tell Peter and the others, put a sock in it? Why would He do that if it was true? May I suggest that the only reasonable explanation for this is that Peter, on your outlines here, Peter and all of Israel with him did not fully comprehend the mission of the Messiah. Peter and all of Israel with him did not fully comprehend the mission of the Messiah. You know, how many of you know what a Scantron test is? Raise your hand if you know what a Scantron test is. Alright. Austin, you like those tests? No, he doesn't. For those of you that don't know what a Scantron test is, it's those those long tests you get with the A, B, C, D, E, and you've got to fill in the bubble. Okay? Number one, B. Number two, C. And, you, and you're filling in these bubbles with your number two pencil. And, and oh boy, Scantron tests, I agree with Austin. They, they're a pain, right? They're a pain. But a Scantron test, make no mistake about it, is much, much easier than answering an essay question. Well, maybe not. Okay. I would argue. A Scantron test is much, much easier than answering a question in an essay. Why? Because on a Scantron, all you've got to do is check the box. When you know the answer, you say it's B, or it's C, or it's A. I know the answer. Boom. I'm done. I move on. Peter, friends, declares to Jesus, you are the Christ. Do you know what he was doing? He was circling in that bubble. He was saying, I, I know what you are. You're the Christ. He was given a Scantron kind of an answer to a question that Jesus was looking for an essay kind of answer. Jesus wanted Peter to develop this, not just check off the box, but to begin to explain, and what does that mean, Peter? What does it mean that I'm the Christ? What does it mean that I'm the Messiah? Don't just check off the Messiah box and say, well, yeah, Jesus is Messiah. Uh, Jesus is Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And assume you can go on your way not having any knowledge of what those statements mean. Peter is checking off the box. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. You couldn't answer that question if you tried. What did Peter mean? What did Peter mean? If he was to write an essay question, excuse me, an essay answer, if you will, on this question, If Jesus were to ask him, okay, now explain what Christ means, what would Peter have said? I want to take you through a few conceptions, first century conceptions about the Messiah. We've discussed these before, but I've never given you uh, such a more exhaustive and comprehensive view. If you want to know 
what the first century Jewish ear heard when they thought about the Messiah, it would be these things. Number one, that He would be divinely anointed, commissioned by God. That that the Messiah would be one who was anointed, set apart for a special mission of God. Number two, the Messiah, His coming would signify a new age. Something new would be happening. The apocalypse or or a a new kind of, of era of human life would begin with the Messiah's coming. Three, He would be a Davidic king. That is to say, He would be a son of David. He would be coming in the, in the line in, from the literal lineage and in the spirit of the power of King David, the greatest king of Israel. They were looking for another son of David, a Davidic king. Four, he would be a militaristic conqueror of nations. He would be a militaristic conqueror of nations. They envisioned a Messiah who was of military might and prowess. Five, they envisioned the Messiah to be a judge and ruler of the world. They expected the Messiah would come and would judge evil, judge evil people, evil nations, and that He would rule the world with a rod of iron. Six, that He would bring peace, prosperity, and honor to Israel. Um, Each of these are are critical. Peace. Israel was looking for peace. They had been in exile for many, many years. Prosperity. Many of the Old Testament Scriptures talked of the nations bringing the riches to Israel. And that would come with Messiah's coming. And also honor. Israel had been shamed. Shamed. Their name had been drugged through the mud. And they desperately wanted a return to honor. And they believed the Messiah would do that for them. And finally, that the Messiah would be a priest and a prophet. Almost like a combined office there. Both a spiritual leader and a teacher. If I were to make seven statements about what they expected, it would be these seven. And there are more. But this is going to be just about as exhaustive as you can get when you want to get into the mind of a first century Jew. When Peter said, you are the Christ, I contend that this is what Peter was thinking. At least most of these. At least most of these. Now, briefly, I want to do one quick rabbit trail. I want to talk to you and give you a real neat perspective on what did the Jews disagree on about the Messiah? What did they disagree about? regarding the Messiah. Take a look at this. Number one, they didn't know if there would be one or two Messiahs. Now, this might be new to some of you. Many, many of the Jews argued for one Messiah. They said He'll be a prophet, a priest, a king, all in one. Others said, no, there are going to be two Messiahs. And and much of this came out of the Qumran community to the south, uh, near the Dead Sea, to the south of Jerusalem. And they envisioned a prophet-priest kind of individual and a king kind of individual. And in fact, the, the Scriptures in John 1, 25... Take a look. Take, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. It's not on the screen behind you. This is fascinating because it differentiates the king from the prophet. Take a look at John 1, 21. No, start in verse... Uh, Start in verse 19. John 1, 19. Now this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? Notice the parallel. Who are you, John? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He said, I'm not the Christ. Verse 21. Then they asked Him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Take a look at verse 25. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Notice who's separated. The Christ from the prophet. The Christ from the prophet are separated. That is to say, that is to say, that they, these particular Jews who were speaking with John the Baptist, 
as they were talking with him, and, and John most likely is baptizing down from Jerusalem near the region of Qumran, where this ideology would have been prevalent. And they asked him, are you the kingly Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet priest Messiah? No. They didn't know if there would be one or two Messiahs. This was a disagreement in first century Israel. Take a look at number two. <clears throat> they, didn't, they had disagreement over whether the Messiah would be divine or human. Whether he'd be eternal or temporal. In fact, if you look at some extra-biblical uh, writings in the first century, you'll see some of the Jews in the Pseudepigrapha, they'll be writing about the, the death of the Messiah. They'll be writing about how the Messiah is going to die. And a, a suffering motif, if you will. And so they didn't know, is he going to be divine or human? They, they couldn't quite answer those questions. And I, rightly so. You know, we, when we try to explain Jesus as the God-man, that is a very difficult concept to understand. So it makes sense that this was of disagreement in first century Israel. Three, they disagreed on where he would be born. Some said Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Others said, no, he'd be of unknown origin. If you read that passage in John, the people says, we don't know where he's going to be born. He's going to be of unknown origin. He's going to be a, like a, a divine, heavenly origin. And they weren't expecting him to have an earthly kind of birth. Not all of them. Four, how is the Messiah both David's son and David's Lord? You might recall this from Psalm 110. Uh, there, David describes the Messiah as both his son and his Lord. How could that be? How could someone's son also be his Lord? And they had contention about this. And finally, they didn't know what to do with suffering. How to deal with the suffering motif of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 and Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> they didn't know how to make sense of a Messiah who was prophet, priest, and king and yet would suffer? That there was a huge dichotomy there for them. And it was difficult for them to comprehend what precisely was meant by that in Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9. Is this helpful? You guys, is this uh, interesting to you? Good, I hope so. I, I know that it is to me. Because we need to know what they're thinking. As Peter's making this statement, you are the Christ, we can just gloss over that and say, well, okay, he was right. Why did Jesus rebuke him? Well, this is why he rebuked him. Because of some of the, the misconceptions and the he got part of it but didn't get all of it kind of thing about the Messiah. <clears throat> ben Witherington says this very fittingly about all of this as we kind of sum up this discussion. By calling Jesus Messiah, Peter sees Jesus as God's anointed. But there appears to have been little or no expectation in early Judaism that Messiah would come and suffer. Thus, Peter's confession, while true, is not the whole truth about Jesus. <clears throat> Let's return to verse 30. Is it any wonder now, as we look at verse 30, why Jesus rebukes them? Why He warns them to keep quiet? Take a look at verse 30. Peter says, You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. The word warn there is rebuke. He rebuked them. He says, be quiet. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Why? Because they were missing the point. It was not, it was still not time to speak openly about the fact that Jesus was the Christ. Peter and the disciples didn't have the full picture. And if, if I can sum up this as, as we leave this section of Scripture, I want to say this. Jesus silences Peter's confession because Peter is blind to Jesus' mission. Jesus silences Peter's confession because Peter is blind to Jesus' mission. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, I'm not the Christ that you're thinking of. And so in an effort to enlighten their eyes some more with spiritual truth, Jesus now in verse 31, for the first time, is going to make His mission very explicit. He has not come to earth with a rod of iron by which to judge the nations. Instead, 
Peter, Jesus has come to redefine for Peter and all of Israel with him what the nature of Messiah's mission truly is. Take a look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. And before we get into what Jesus' mission was here, notice how He describes Himself. You see in yellow there, Son of Man. Jesus changes the terminology. Son of Man was not um, readily equivalent to Messiah, Christ. Peter had just got done saying, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, be quiet. And then Jesus goes on to make a comment about Himself and says, I want to tell you about the Son of Man myself. He, redefin- he, he changes the terminology. Now, why does He do this? Why would He change the terminology? George Ladd, one of my all-time favorite theologians, says this. He says, Jesus did not call Himself the Messiah because His mission was utterly different from that connoted to the Jewish mind. He had called Himself the Son of Man Because this title made an exalted claim and yet at the same time permitted Jesus to fill the term with new meaning. This is well said. This is well said. Folks, Jesus avoided a term, Messiah, Christ, that had all these misconceptions with it. And instead, He chose the term, Son of Man, which we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. And I've purposefully left that definition until now so that we can begin to talk about this. He's adopted a new phrase, Son of Man, in order to fill it with the meaning that He intends for it. The, word, the phrase Son of Man, uh, you see that phrase in uh, Daniel chapter 7. You see that phrase throughout the book of Ezekiel. It speaks of a heavenly Son of Man who is, is coming to earth and bringing with Him a kingdom. But the conception of Son of Man in the first century Jewish mind was very ambiguous. Jesus was able to bring new meaning and content and and object to that phrase. Whereas Messiah, Christ, they, they, they thought they knew what the Messiah was. They thought they knew who the Christ was. Jesus avoids that term. He accepts the Son of Man term because He knows that He can use that for His purposes. Now, to be clear, when Jesus speaks of Himself as the Son of Man, He means to say that He is the Messiah. But He's using different terminology. He's using terminology that identifies Himself with man, that brings Him to man's level, that He's a Son of Man. He identifies with humanity. And yet at the same time, He's drawing on what the Old Testament says in Daniel and Ezekiel about the Son of Man. Uh, in, in Daniel, the heavenly Son of Man coming down and bringing with Him a kingdom. Words, all this is to say, friends, words are critically important here. Jesus chooses His terminology very carefully because words, words can be misinterpreted. People formulate great conclusions based upon words they use to define themselves. Uh, Joyce Bennett gave me a book uh, not too long ago. The book behind me, it's called uh, Unchristian. Anybody read this book yet? Alright, a couple of you have. Good. Um, this, this book is uh, really, it's, uh, it's, it's getting a lot of attention in Christianity and in the unchristian world. This book by David Kinnaman, who was a Biola... uh, uh, He graduated a year before me. I didn't really know him well, but I knew of him. This book is an attempt to develop... to to explain how non-Christians think about Christians. This book, its sole purpose is to give you an idea of what non-Christians think about you when you start talking about yourself as a Christian. And it's a very insightful book. 
But I wanted to bring out one point that, that, that blew me away more than anything as we're talking about words and how words can be mis, misconstrued and, and, and ill-conceived. Take a look at this, this question. What's the first thing that comes to mind when a non-Christian person hears the word evangelical? This book attempts to answer this question. And anybody want to take a, take, a, take a guess as to what the answer might be? If you're a, think of a non-Christian friend, and a, an unbelieving friend, and you say, I'm an evangelical. What do you think the first thing that comes to mind is for them? Televangelists? Okay, what else? What's that? Right-wing conservative? Anybody else? Judge? Anybody else? Pentecostal, maybe? Radical? You're going to be blown away. Okay, Bill, last answer. Fundamentalist? This is the first thing that comes to their mind. Christian political activist. Does that, does that define evangelical for you? It certainly doesn't define it for me. When I say I'm an evangelical, I am not declaring to the world, I'm a Christian political activist. That's what they hear. That's what the people in the world hear. When I say I'm an evangelical, they hear, oh, you're one of those Christian political activist folks. Now folks, are they wrong in their perception? Yes. But you know what? That doesn't matter. Perception is reality, right? Perception is reality. For them, when they see this term evangelical, they begin to think, you're just one of those political activists. I need to be careful when I use this word. Because that definition does not describe me. At the very least, it doesn't describe my affiliation with being an evangelical. We need to be so careful with the words that we use and how we define them. Be careful how you talk to your unbelieving friends. Be careful about using words like evangelical. Be careful about using fundamentalist. Be careful about using, uh, I'll, I'll say kingdom, kingdom of God. They're like, whoa, is that military? And what, do you, what do you mean kingdom of God? They don't, they don't know what you mean by kingdom of God. Be careful how you define your terms as you speak with the unbelieving world. You need to be approaching them gently and, and, and patiently and being quick to define your terms. Jesus was doing this in our story. He was rejecting this term Messiah because, man, that term had been obliterated by a first century Jewish mind. And instead, He embraced Son of Man because that was a term He could bring new meaning into without having misconceptions about it. Returning uh, to verse 31. We see again in verse 31 that He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. That is to say, He spoke it clearly. He spoke it uh, without shame. Unashamed of what He was saying. Glory in the eyes of, of Peter meant political might. Glory in the eyes of Jesus meant first humbling Himself to the point of suffering, rejection, and death. And after that humility, Jesus anticipated that He would receive glory. That He would rise from the dead. For Peter, glory would be achieved by the display of power, of might. For Jesus, glory would be achieved through affliction and martyrdom. When Peter confessed, you are the Christ, Jesus wasn't very impressed by his answer. And so Jesus rebuked him for it. And he said, don't tell anybody about that. They don't get that term. When Jesus speaks openly about his mission, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die. Peter says, no, I'm going to rebuke you this time now, Jesus. Jesus. I don't like that. I don't like those themes. 
I don't like that motif you're painting. Suffering, rejection, death. No, no. I like king. I like throne. I like crown. I like power. I like conqueror. Jesus rebuked Peter. Now Peter's rebuking Jesus. Verse 32b. Take a look at it. Uh, The end of 32. After Jesus spoke this word openly, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is the same word in verse 30 where Jesus says He strictly warned them. Same word. Ever tried to rebuke a superior? (laughs) Memorial Day, you veterans out there, did you ever rebuke your superior officer? I don't hear anybody. That doesn't surprise me. Rebuking a superior officer in the military is, 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 uh, is not a very smart thing to do. Likewise, what Peter's doing right now is less than wise. Less than wise. Take a look at verse 33 as we finish up today. But when he had turned around, this is Jesus, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Third time, another rebuke saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is not too happy with Peter. Mark says Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. I, I, I would suppose that um, Jesus took a long look at every single one of them right here. As if to connect with them, to look them in the eyes, each one of them, Say, did you hear what he just said to me? Let me make it crystal clear what I think of what he said to me. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the things of God. You're thinking the the things of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, in his human wisdom, was attempting to correct Jesus' divinely anointed mission to suffer and die. Peter didn't like these themes. He liked his own conception of the word Messiah. But Peter tells, but Jesus tells Peter that he isn't mindful of the things of God. And that's a striking statement. What that means is is that if we want to talk about God things, if we want to talk about God things, if we want to have a roundtable discussion about the things that God honors, we would have a discussion about humility, selflessness, and service. We would not have conversations about power, military prowess, fame, fortune. Besides, Jesus says the only way to glory is through suffering. And so Peter, spiritually blinded to Jesus' mission, is likened to Satan himself. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. No, Jesus isn't suggesting that Peter is Satan. He's not suggesting that. But that Satan's influence is wreaking havoc on his mind. Satan is blinding Peter. And Jesus rebukes Peter strongly to help him fall back in line. Four points of application. What can we learn from our story today? First, be slow to speak and choose your words carefully. I know that that seems very trite, but if there's ever been a study about words, it would be this one. Define your terms well and speak, speak slowly. Speak, uh, don't speak often. James speaks of this. He says, hey, don't, don't use your mouth a lot because it can get you into trouble. And when you do use it, choose your words well. Define your terms well. This goes for evangelism as you speak with the unbelieving world. Be careful in how you reach out to them. Two, Jesus knew his audience well, his disciples, and revealed spiritual truth to them in gradual and measured steps. Do we mimic Jesus' approach when we teach or evangelize? You know, I think a lot of people try the Uh, have the perception that, hey, whenever I meet somebody that doesn't know Jesus, I'm going to give them everything all at once. I don't think that that was the model that Jesus gave. I think that Jesus gave spiritual truth in measure. He didn't give it too much. 
And he didn't give not enough. He gave the right amount for the hearer. And we need to be mindful of that. Three, in God's mind, glory comes by means of humility. Let us be willing to suffer, face rejection, or even death for the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that glory awaits us in the end. You know, I, I say this and we say, well, come on, even death for the name of Jesus Christ. Folks, people are dying for Jesus Christ today around the world. The privileges and the freedoms that we have today are only here as a result of God's blessing and as a result of the hard work and dedication of the veterans in this room. We are a unique and blessed country. And the, the day is coming, and already is to some extent, where we will be persecuted for the name of Christ. Where we will have to either choose Christ or, or shrink back and fade into a dying culture. And, uh, and Jesus makes it very clear here, hey, if you want glory, suffer. Be willing to suffer for me. And finally, and I, I would just say this is a commit to memory thing. This is something I want you to know. Commit to memory the reasons behind Jesus' avoidance of the term Messiah. Why did He avoid that term? Can you explain the, the common first century uh, misconceptions about the term? How did Jesus seek to redefine the term? You know, there are a lot of Scantron Christians out here. There are a lot of Scantron Christians in the world who, I got my A, I, okay, I got D, I know that answer, I know that answer. That, that's their idea of Christianity and their idea of biblical knowledge. Folks, that's not sufficient. Jesus wants you to be able to understand and explain why it is He disassociated Himself from that term. It was a term that described Him, and yet He said, I don't want that one, I want a new one. I'm going to take Son of Man instead of Christ, Messiah. And in so doing, He made it clear what, he truly, what His divine mission truly was all about. Be able to explain that and know that in your person. Folks, let us choose our words carefully. Um, let us, uh, as we speak with others, let us define our terms well. And let us be slow to speak, quick to listen. And recognize that, uh, that our words, boy, they carry powerful weight behind them. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for uh, this study in Mark. I thank You for Your Word, Lord. It's, it's precious. We learn something new every day. I know I do, Father. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to study and to teach. And Father, I pray that, that uh, Your Word would have gone forth today. That it would have been received with humble ears, and that we in turn would learn to grow in the manner in which we can from these stories. Father, thank You for this day. I pray Your special blessing upon those who have served our country. Lord, thank You for the sacrifice that they've made as they've mimicked Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that He's made for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.